0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: I think when we are able to cultivate an awareness of our own greatness. Now at 14, that word did not resonate with me. I wouldn't have been able to tell you that there was anything that I could have termed great about me. But just that knowing that there is something in us that is bigger, that is bolder, that is being called. If you can in any way latch onto that and then find a way to run with it, what it does is create and build a sense of purpose, not only a purpose outside of you, but being on purpose, the experience of being on purpose inside of you. That is a powerful intrinsic motivator and external motivator. And when you have the internal and the external working in tandem, it's extremely powerful for behavior change. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
0: Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I was actually referred to you by way of uh, our mutual friend, Michael Roderick, who is really the definition in a lot of ways of super connector and a former guest here on Unmistakable Creative. And he had a lot of amazing things to say about you. Um, But before we get into what you do, I want to start by asking you: where in the world did you grow up and what impacted where you grew up end up having on your life and the choices that you've made with your career?
1: Oh, my gosh. I love this question. Um, I grew up about 10 or so miles outside of New York City in uh, in northern New Jersey. And it has had a huge impact on everything. I don't know how familiar you are with that area of the country, but it's it's interesting to say the least. Um, you have to really to survive it and thrive. You have to have a great sense of humor and some seriously thick skin. You've got to be able to move quickly, but also be able to balance slowing down and checking in. Um, and it's just it's also just an amazing area in terms of diversity and and you know cultural experience. So. It was an amazing place to grow up, but also I moved uh, from there in 2009 and it was really one of the best decisions I made, not just for me, but for family and for what I do for a living. So uh, it had a really powerful impact on what I do.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned that you have to be really thick skinned um, to survive that environment. And I'm curious, what are the experiences that allowed you to develop that thick skin growing up? Like, What are things that have happened that have gotten you to that point?
1: Yeah. So several things, some of them have to do with where I grew up, but a lot of them have to do just with how I grew up and my, my own personal experience. What I will say about the, just kind of the area in general is, you know, New York city, obviously an amazing place, but very, very fast paced and people from the Northeast. One of the things I actually love about people from the Northeast is that we're, we tend to be very direct. We tend to be very to the point. Um, and it's honestly, it's out of respect. It's like, you know, I don't have the time. You don't have the time. I want to hear what you have to say. I want to connect with you, but, but let's get to the point without a lot of fluff. Um, but you know, if you're a sensitive person, which I really, really am, you've got to be able to survive that sort of environment, not lose yourself in it and be able to relate. But on a more personal level, if that's, if that's cool to share, Mm -hmm. um, I grew up in a, in a, kind of upper middle class family that on the outside looked like we just sort of had everything put together. So it was nice house, nice cars, nice stuff, and seemingly nice people. And they they are nice people. But behind closed doors, there was lots and lots of dysfunction that was hidden and was not talked about, was not addressed. And that really probably contributed the most to not only the person I am, but the work that I do in the world.
0: Mm -hmm. Can you talk in more detail about what happened?
1: Absolutely. So I grew up in a family where um, both sides come from a long line of mental illness and um, alcoholism. So both of my uh, grandmothers struggled with mental illness. Both of my grandfathers struggled with alcoholism. And the way that sort of trickled down into my family and and impacted me was uh, I was the first of three daughters uh, come from a very driven, ambitious family. Lots of perfectionism, lots of demands. And uh, that translated into lots of things for me, including struggling with depression for many, many years, clinical depression, not the kind like Oh, you know, I'm gonna curl up and watch Netflix for a week, but the kind that really debilitates you. So struggled with depression, struggled with an eating disorder for uh, seven solid years before I got treatment. Had uh, was diagnosed with anxiety and panic at one time, and had lots of, of issues functioning in a healthy way inside of interpersonal relationships. And those things all happened before the age of, gosh, I would say before 21. So they had a big impact on shaping me as a person, but also on um, my ability to turn around and help others and also just the career path that I chose. Hmm. So it showed up differently for my, my siblings, but this is it really showed up for me and how it landed with me. And it's one of the reasons why. I'm so insanely passionate about um, doing the inner development, the self mastery and the mindset work because I don't have any of those diagnoses anymore. And I live a life that looks nothing like it did all those years ago because of having done that work.
0: Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll talk specifically about that work um, in a moment because I think this will make a perfect segue. But, you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm always really curious about is the role that environment plays uh, for different people and I've yeah. noticed that some people become a byproduct of their environment and other people overcome it uh, yeah. if that environment is you know not particularly suitable to you know a, a good outcome. And I'm curious why you think that that happens to those two groups of people like what differentiates the person who overcomes their environment from the one who doesn't?
1: I love this question. I think there's several differentiating factors, but the one that I can speak to, I think the most clearly is um, has to do with two things. Number one, uh, whether or not you cultivate the ability to connect with and communicate with what uh, there's lots of terms for it but I I tend to call it your inner being so for me it was about at being 14 15 years old and hearing sort of that inner voice that was saying you are meant for more than this this is not all there is this you know this feels crazy and it looks crazy but this is not the end of the story and also um, you know access to resources which is incredibly helpful but But the key is then from that place, cultivating an inner environment that allows you to overcome anything that's that's happening in your external environment, the key to. Kicking it all off, though, is really, truly being connected to that, that inner voice. And I, I often say it's, you know, my intuition or whatever. But I was very, very aware at 14 that there was at least a whisper that was saying to me, this is not all there is.
0: Mm-hmm. So in the midst of uh, a sort of a debilitating depression, um, how do you not let that become all consuming? Because I, I, you know, dealt with my fair share of, of depression related stuff as well.
1: Yeah, Um, that's it's a really great question. I don't know that there's a totally straight answer. And I can't, I also can't say that there weren't times that I felt completely debilitated by it. But feeling a certain way and making a decision based on that. Those are two separate things. So there were moments where I felt, I mean, I can, I can remember being 19 years old and just literally being curled up in a ball on the floor of my, you know, the apartment I was, I was renting with my friends at college. And just thinking to myself, I'm, I don't know if I can bounce back from this. I don't know if there's enough medication. I don't know if there's enough in me. I don't know if there's enough around me to support me. I don't know if I can do this. And I honored that. And I was in that space and I asked for help, which is so incredibly important. What I did not do is make a final decision based on those temporary thoughts and feelings that I was having. So I didn't decide that it was game over and I did not decide that depression was going to have, you know, a say in everything I did moving forward. I knew I needed help in that moment. I asked for that help. I didn't give up until I got that help, but I didn't decide it was game over.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, that raises a question for me. So I recently wrote this piece uh, that ended up getting picked up by the New York Times titled what we should have learned in school, but never did. Um, And a good amount of it was about managing your psychology. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, uh, given the perspective that you have, why do you think that we aren't taught this in our education system? Why aren't we exposed to this earlier in life, given the role that this kind of information plays?
1: Oh my goodness. You and I could have this conversation forever because my original, my very first career was um, doing mental health and substance abuse counseling in public schools in New Jersey. And so I was constantly battling to get more and more of this into the schools. And I, what I will tell you is the answer I got time and time again was that there was neither the time nor the budget for it. So, you know, I, I, there is some truth to that, but but what the underlying truth is, is that we direct our time and our money towards that which we believe our priorities. And I don't think that our current uh, public school systems, at least here in the United States, I can't speak to other places, but in the United States, I don't think that our curriculum and the structure of our day reflects this, any of this as a priority. Now, the districts I was in, at least I was able to sort of wiggle some of this in. I was able to work with some of the teachers who were really open minded about it, who would say, come in and teach, you know, several lessons to my classes, or let's do, you know, a, a you know, presentation in the auditorium, let's do a parent night. But I think, and I think this is what you are alluding to is this needs to be consistently taught with the same rigor and fervor that math and science and and English is taught. If we're going to see a a real difference come of it. Yeah. Um,
0: Given that I I can't help but ask your, your perspective on the whole school shooting issue.
1: Oh, gosh. Yeah, let me take a deep breath before I answer, because I have school-aged children, and and this has hit home very, very hard. So really, truly what I believe that all of this violence is about, and this for some people is— Makes me not be their favorite person, and I'm totally okay with that. But what I believe and what I preach is that if we do not teach our, especially our boys, how to manage embrace ex- and express emotion in a healthy, fluid way. They have no choice other than to deny that emotion or push the emotion down or react to the emotion instead of respond. So we have boys who run around in pain, who grow up to be men who run around in pain, who don't know how to express it. Now, that doesn't mean that every man who's in pain is going to lash out with her with horrendous violence. Obviously, there are other factors that contribute here, including the environment you grow up in and some predispositions, but we all know that that doesn't mean they're a guarantee they're gonna come out. But herein, I think, lies the core. We need more emotional intelligence being taught. We need more emotional skills and understanding and self-awareness being taught from a very young age. And we also need to understand that Typically, historically, it's been much more acceptable for females to be able to express those emotions than for males. And that absolutely has to change if, you know, we want anything in terms of gun violence or legislation around those things to be fully uh, really have a, a tremendous impact across the board.
2: Mm
0: hmm. So you mentioned that you're a parent and, um, yes. you know, having not grown up with parents who were exposed to to sort of this kind of information and, and this sort of a mindset. I'm curious. Uh, and, and, you know, from your own experience, how has it changed the way that you're approaching raising your own children?
1: Tremendously. So I was raised by parents who uh, this was not a discussion we would ever have had. Sure. This is just not something that would have been discussed, feelings weren't really discussed, um, which is quite typical in families of of alcoholics. And so it it was just sort of pull yourself up by the bootstraps and get back to work, which is a really common mentality. I think because of the way that sort of parenting landed with me. In other words, that didn't meet my needs. That didn't support the kind of person that I am and the kind of person I desired to become. Um, I was f- sort of forced to seek out what I needed from other places and other people. In other words, I had to get parenting elsewhere. And what it's done for me is it's allowed me to have compassion and understanding and empathy for where my parents came from and what they were taught and and the resources they did not really have access to, you know, when they were growing up and when they were parenting, but also um, learn from all of those mistakes and learn how, how to translate that in a more sort of modern and effective way into parenting my own sons. Now, <laughs> I am not going to tell you I do that perfectly. Most days I feel lucky if I did it <clears throat> sort of well. The beautiful thing is kids don't need perfection, they need consistency and they need good enough. And the other thing is, and I find look, I'm 46, so Uh, And my parents are in their, their 70s. But I feel like my generation might be the first generation that actually turned around and said, uh, we owe our kids an apology when we do things wrong but also they are they also have the ability to teach us a tremendous amount so one of the things that I consistently try to do is listen with the intent of learning from my children because they will consistently show me where where I am falling short in supporting them and it is my job to step up to the pl- plate and adjust myself and my parenting style in order to Support the men they are becoming.
0: Mm-hmm. How has uh, your relationship with your own parents changed as a byproduct of um, you know the work that you've done on yourself?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I, you know, I would not say I have a close relationship with my parents. I have respect for my parents. I have compassion for my parents. But what I have had to learn to do is set very, very clear boundaries. And not just with them, with, you know, just in general, with people, uh, whether it's in business or in my personal life, that allow me to function at a, a very high and a very level. So I would say one of the biggest things, the biggest impact is learning how to sort of have a relationship that is healthy, that is functioning, but that is, uh, maybe doesn't fit the stereotype or even quite honestly, fit the desire of what you want your relationship with your parents to be. And I've had to learn how to be okay with that. Some days are easier than others, to be honest, when it comes to that,
0: Mm -hmm. Walking through how you overcame all of these things, you know, depression and eating disorder, um, all the things that really were debilitating, um, you know, walking through, you know, the inner changes and then how the external changes took place and how that all ended up connecting to what you've ended up doing with your work.
1: Yeah, sure. So for me, it it came to a head very quickly as a as a teenager. Um, The depression took me very quickly. um, And I became suicidal. I was the first time I was suicidal. I was 14 years old. And I I knew right then and there that this was an emergency. And this was not something that I actually desired. I didn't really want to hurt myself. I didn't really want to end my life. But I felt such a deep degree degree of desperation. Um, and so I was aware that if I didn't ask for help, that desperation was not going to dissipate uh, on its own. And so I did, I did go to my parents. They very reluctantly got me some support. And then I sought out support in my school, which at the time, and this is in the 80s, uh, we had a rare position in our school, which was a student assistance counselor. I'd never even heard of that prior to that. Anyway, he very much stepped in and and guided me through my very tumultuous teen years. And what I found in that guidance was that I really had a gift in turning around and sharing that with other people helping them to shift perspectives in a way that was relatively profound. And what I ended up doing was I went to college to study um, psychology and then after college went on and got a, a graduate degree in clinical social work and then went on to, to do some post-grad work and then practice for 20 plus years. But, you know, the, the problems showed up for a long, long time and they showed up, they morphed, they showed up in different forms. And so every time I thought I had solved or, or, you know, really calmed down one of the symptoms, another symptom would pop up. Interestingly, what I found later after many years of of doing this work with and for other people is that the key to for me at least, and for the people I worked with to change, to healing, to evolution, to expansion was not just fix how I feel. And people used to come into my practice and say that all the time. They'd say, Kelly, I, I don't, I'm not happy. I'm miserable. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I'm anxious. I don't feel well. I need to fix how I feel or the behavior. So, you know, it wasn't just about changing my eating disordered behavior. That wasn't the key to everything. And same thing in my practice, people would come in and say, Kelly, I'm fighting with my spouse, or I'm, you know, lying, I'm cheating, I'm stealing, I'm using drugs, my behavior needs adjustment. What I found time and time again, without fail was that the people who agreed to do the work, to change how they thought, and to change their hardwired beliefs, were the ones who enjoyed the most profound change and, and transformation, myself included. Once I began to really uproot the beliefs that I held about my own um, inadequacy, which is really what I refer to as the universal struggle. I've never met a person who didn't struggle on some level with inadequacy. Once I truly addressed that on a deep level, everything else began to shift.
0: Mm -hmm. Wow. So a lot of questions come from this. Um, you know, having been in a, you know, practice where you've probably seen thousands of people, uh, one, what do you think uh, why do you think some people take a really long time to change, and why do you think others change rapidly? You know, I asked this very question to Annie Usim, who's a, a psychiatrist who wrote a book called uh, Fulfilled, and uh, I'm really curious, you know, what you see as patterns there.
1: Yeah. So I've seen several patterns. Um, the first thing is personality and we can't quite help the personality that we have. It's solidified relatively early on. And it's not that you can't soften the edges of personality. You absolutely can, but you know, some people's personalities just make being resilient in my experience, a little bit more accessible than others. So that's one. The second thing I've seen is And you'll hear this not only sort of in the world of psychology and counseling, but in personal development and even in the business world, who you consistently surround yourself with matters. It has a profound impact on your own mindset and your own perception. And so it was interesting because once I left my home and I really was quite picky about who I surrounded myself with when I was away at college, things began to shift. People were reflecting back to me things I wanted to believe about myself, but that I had heard the exact opposite of growing up. So I think that is an, another huge factor. Now, I don't want to spend too much time talking about, you know, genetic predispositions to things, but we can't ignore that altogether because obviously when you combine that with certain environmental factors, the likelihood that they'll come out is is increased. So that that is one of the moving pieces. It can't be denied. But what I don't want people to do is say, oh, I come from all of these generations of depressed people, so I'm doomed to be depressed or, or addicted or alcoholic or eating disordered or any any other thing. Um, but it is a piece. Mm-hmm. And then finally, and this just circles back around a little bit to you know what I said before, I think when we are able to cultivate an awareness of our own greatness, now at 14, that word did not resonate with me. I wouldn't have been able to tell you that there was anything that I could have termed great about me, but just that knowing that there is something in us that is bigger, that is bolder, that is being called. If you can in any way, latch onto that and then find a way to run with it. What it does is create, and build a sense of purpose, not only a purpose outside of you, but being on purpose, the experience of being on purpose inside of you. That is a powerful intrinsic motivator and external motivator. And when you have the internal and the external working in tandem, it's extremely powerful for behavior change. Hiring for your small
3: business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place.
5: stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started here's a
0: cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs coming off their parents plan or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Okay, um, I want to come back to that, but I think this may actually make a perfect segue to that idea. Uh, why is it that sometimes uh, despite what we accomplish, uh, accolades, you know, achievements, uh, we have a hard time being aware of our own greatness or we, we don't see it, you know, often we don't see in ourselves what other people see in us?
1: it's so, so true. Oh my goodness. I don't think I've ever had a, a patient or a client that didn't struggle with this and I've I struggled with it myself and what I've come to understand is that a big piece of this has to do with um, our subconscious minds so you know between the time we're born and somewhere arguably between the age 5 and 6 um, we literally directly download everything we've been exposed to without resistance now in terms of self awareness we sort of come online between 5 and 6 and we become aware that we are separate from. And from that place, we can begin to apply resistance to things. That's why if, you know, somebody walked up to you on the street today and just said, you know, I I think you suck or I think you're terrible or whatever, there would be some part of you that would truly, truly resist that. So what we're exposed to from a very, very young age, whether it's inside our families of origin or inside our classrooms or inside our places of worship or from media and marketing, it it is directly downloaded. And what I've noticed time and time again is that a lot of those messages are about inadequacy. So it becomes very difficult for us to believe excuse me, or to latch onto this idea of this truth of there being greatness inside of us. And that's why um, I think we've got to become aware of how powerful the subconscious mind is and do a little bit of work to reprogram it, much like a computer that has not been programmed well to function, to support you in your office or your home.
0: Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the reprogramming component, because you said, you know, when you have the internal and the external matchup, you get sort of outstanding results. And of course, I'm sure anybody who's listening is probably really interested in that. So I want to look at it through a couple of different lenses. One is practically, how do you apply that to your life? If somebody is listening, saying, okay, that all sounds amazing, but how would I go out and apply it to my life? And two, I'd like to look at it through the lens of somebody that's actually done this work with you, whether it's a company or an individual and kind of what the results have been.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, a um, couple of things because not, this is all really interesting to talk about and read about and learn about. But if you can't apply it, then it's it's not terribly powerful in your life, your business, your you know anything you're doing. So there's two real components here. People need to understand that we have, and this is extremely simplified for the purpose of being able to take action on it. So we have a conscious mind, which is the mind that you're uh, you know very aware of, and then we have the subconscious mind, which you're pretty much not at all aware of. And the interesting thing is the subconscious mind is really responsible for upwards of 95% of what we experience every day. Yet Most things that are taught to us about, um, you know, disciplining the mind and creating mindset, uh, a powerful mindset, is really geared towards conscious thought. Now, I don't want to downplay the power of conscious thought, it is incredibly powerful. It affects the decisions we make, the emotions that we feel, it um, really contributes to beliefs that we cultivate, but it's not the powerhouse. So while I use things like affirmations and, you know, I do journaling work and all things like that, and they are powerful, that's not going to be enough. You've got to be able to access your subconscious mind and rewire it. And it sounds like it would be this crazy complicated process. It's not, it's really not. There's some very, very simple ways to access your subconscious mind. And I am a fan of, um, you know, using hacks as long as it's done with integrity and consistency. So, some of the ways that I encourage people to access their subconscious mind is through the use of subliminals, through the use of uh, hypnosis, through um, I sort of like to call it an evening and a morning routine where very simply when you first wake up in the morning and also when you are dipping off or preparing to dip off for sleep at night, the 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 barrier between the conscious and the subconscious mind becomes very thin, so to speak. So it's much, much easier to program new things in. So a really simple way that I do this in the evening before I'm falling asleep is I have a practice of appreciation for the day where I'm just kind of running over everything that happened in my day and I'm cultivating appreciation for all the great things, but also all the challenges that showed up to stretch me. And I start to program my mind with statements that I want to go directly into my subconscious mind and they need to be statements that do two things. And here's the key. Cause it'd be nice if we all walked around every day going, I'm a millionaire. I am the president of this or the CEO of this. That, that would be lovely if that worked, but it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And here's, here's why you have got to be able to number one, Uh, speak the language of the subconscious mind. The subconscious mind doesn't communicate through English or Spanish or Chinese. It communicates via emotion, and through imagery. That's how you program the subconscious mind. So any statement you go to make needs to number one, cultivate a very strong, positive, emotional response by strong. I don't mean you have to be jumping out of your skin with excitement. It could be peace and contentment, but you have to really, really feel it. And number two, you've got to be able to create a clear visual image in your mind. So, um, one of the things, one of my clients was saying the other day was, and she was struggling a little bit with uh, sales in her business. And she was noticing a lot of her conscious focus was going to lack of lack of lack of. Well, that that's how the brain is wired. That's what it's going to do. It's going to look for the problems and focus on them. But the subconscious mind, you don't want to (laughs) You're not going to program it by focusing on problems. You want to create an intention that is the opposite of. And so what she was doing was going to sleep and mustering up a vision that went along with this statement. My sales are ever increasing. Very, very simple. And she felt almost no resistance to it. Now, if she had gone to say, my sales are amazing. I'm making $3 million. She would have felt an immense amount of resistance. And her mind would have said that is absolutely not true. That is ridiculous. There's no evidence for that. Right. But when she used the statement, my sales are ever increasing, she could feel really positively about that. And she was able to create an image and she felt was falling asleep to that every night. Now, the key is obviously, you have to get up and do other things during the day. You can't just program your mind and think magic's going to happen. Yeah. But this is how you get your mind on board. That's one of the ways you get your mind on board.
0: Uh-huh. So, how do you then, um, once you have the mind on board, how do you match up the behavior? Because like you said, um, I, I think one of the, the sort of vicious traps of personal development, and, and I've you know, mentioned this before, so maybe you have an answer to me, is this sort of um, pattern that I see, You know, whether it's conferences, books, or information products. It's like broken up into three groups of people, people who would get the result, whether they did the thing or not, because that's how they're built. Another group who, whatever they're doing, could be the catalyst for getting a result. And the third, who will go right. back and look for the next magic bullet.
1: Right, right. And the answer is... Uh, That with that third group, the magic bullet group, there is a belief there that is going to disempower them time and time again. And the belief is the answer and the power is outside of me. Hmm. That is the number one problem. It's the reason I see people hire coach after coach after coach, take program, take class course after course, and they're still getting the same results because they believe that the solution, the answer, the magic bullet is outside of them, and they're waiting for somebody to give it to them. Now, that does not mean that we can't go learn a skill, a strategy, a system from an expert And then come back and implement it. And that'll be powerful for us. Of course we can do that. But the mentality and the mindset I'm talking about here is that I need what you have and only you can give it to me. That is a huge problem. When you come to the table, whether it's a a live event or a course or a, a coaching experience, anything like that, and you are of the belief that there is greatness in you you have purpose. And what you're doing is coming to the table to either co-create or expand or learn more. That is a very different place to position yourself from. But the people who say time and time again, I need that guru. I need that expert. I need that, that strategy, that system. It's coming from a place of lack and scarcity. And we don't build you know, amazing external results from a belief in lack and scarcity and inadequacy.
0: Hey, it's Trini, And I just want to say thanks for listening. If you're finding our show inspiring or thought provoking, the biggest thing that you can do to support us is to share the show with someone else who you think would find these conversations valuable. And with most podcast apps, you can just send a link via text. Thanks again for listening to the show. Mm, wow. Well, let's do this. Um, maybe we can walk through a practical example uh, on the air with me. And I think something that probably is relatable to a lot of people. And that is that, you know, I want to increase my income. Um, mm-hmm. How would I take this information and apply it to that idea?
1: So, I had a client um, and I didn't ask her permission to share this here, so I'm just going to say she is very well known in the um, in uh, the social media world and she came to me very very inte- one of the most intelligent people I've ever met in my life hands down gifted she is strategic, she is analytical, she is absolutely brilliant. She also comes to the table with a strong following. And a, a really intact reputation and she had been able in the first sort of iteration of her, her business to help other online businesses make millions without, without a problem. When it came time for her to shift her business model and create something that allowed her to receive in the same way that she was you know, positioning and setting up other people to receive, she pulled the emergency brake. Now, there was no logic for this. There was no um, you know, rational reason for her to do this. And it was incredibly frustrating for her obvious reasons she had reproduced these results time and time and time again so intellectually and logically she was aware she had the skill set the gifts the talents and that those when she applied them really translated into amazing results but interestingly the minute she went to go do it for herself she struggled either she would show up and you know do the work and exhaust herself to the point where she would have to take weeks off at a time, just run herself completely in the ground. Or she would just say, I can't do this. And then she would disappear for weeks. Her personal relationships were taking a monster hit. And yet all the while when she would show up on social media, she was delivering powerful content that was of service to other people. And so what we took a look at here was what are the underlying beliefs That you are holding about you, about your ability to receive, about your deservedness, about your adequacy, about who you are claiming your space in this world, not only as an expert, but as a, a person who's willing to share her greatness out in the world. Well, that opened everything wide up because intelligent, super intelligent, strategic people will have a tendency to always try to solve their problems with intelligence and strategy. That's only one of the gifts we've been given to solve our solve our problems. Mm -hmm. When we go inside and do the internal sort of strategy, the that kind of detective work, then we can bring all of the pieces together. So what we worked on was identifying what those beliefs are, rewiring those beliefs getting really, really dialed in and self-aware of the conscious thought she was having all day long and kind of putting them in their place and in a really lasered way, redirecting her focus and attention. And then here's the key piece. You can work with your mind all day long, but if you do not learn how to navigate your relationship with your feelings, with your emotions, then you're going to have a really difficult time taking consistent inspired action out in the world. So then we dove into how you manage your fear, the guilt, the shame that comes up, the anxiety, the anger, any sadness, all of that stuff. It's we've got to learn how to deal with those feelings so that we can make decisions that not only serve us, but serve other people in the world. That's sort of the magic cycle there is it's working on the mind, being able to navigate your relationship with your emotions and then being able to get into consistent action that allows forward motion and traction, not perfection. It's not it's never linear. It's really not. You'll take the three steps forward and sometimes 12 back, you know, sometimes one back but um, it's about consistently revisiting those three areas and developing a level of mastery that, so you're never taken out of the game, no matter what's going on. Mm
0: -hmm. So, You know, it's interesting that you brought up, uh, you know, people who are intellectual try to to solve problems with intellect. And I I think I tend to be incredibly logic driven. I mean, you know, when I sit around and read books like Ray Dalio's Principles, uh, Mm -hmm. in my mind, I'm like, okay, if I can't, you know, if there's no science to back it up, um, I'm skeptical. The other thing is where I'm always stuck is, okay, so I'm guessing by the time somebody comes to you, they're very clear that they want tangible results as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm curious how you tie a lot of what you're talking about to very specific, concrete and tangible results.
1: Yeah. So what people will usually come to me and say that the thing that they're struggling with is either, um, uh, making a leap from say one career to another, one business or business model to another. So making a really, really big change and they want to do it successfully and they want to do it with some, have it be as smooth as possible. Let's say it that way, or they're going to do something big in the world. They want to write the book, uh, apply for, you know, the stage Um, start the podcast, do, do the big thing, or they're saying, you know what, I'm doing all the things and I'm not making any money. And so while we honor those, those struggles and those desires, what we have to marry it to is what the truth is about human beings. And that is this, human beings only want tangible things and experiences based on what we believe they will make us feel. That is the bottom line. That is how we are wired. So we have to get really clear on why you want the book, why you want more money, why you want to change your business. What is it you are yearning for? So, you know, with this client that I was, I was referring to before, this, we spent, had to spend a lot of time on this in the beginning because it was, no, I just want the results. I just want the money. I just want the business. I just, so resistance, resistance, resistance. And we had to work through that because the truth was while she, of course she wanted all those things and we all do want the tangible things. What she really wanted underneath was a feeling of confidence and competence, competency and adequacy and being connected greatness and having a lot more joy and contentment in her life. And she did not believe those things were possible. So it was a lot easier to focus on the money or the number of sales or the number of clients and stay in complete denial of the other things. And that's being in denial of human nature. That is how we're wired. We're not always aware that we want something because of how we think it's going to make us feel, but it doesn't mean that that is not the number one driving factor.
0: Mm -hmm. So uh, have you found that once people are clear on that, the results externally start to change?
1: Absolutely. Without question. Without question. And, the, you know, if we can or when we can get through the resistance of I just want the thing, I just want the thing, then everything internally begins to shift. And what happens is they allow themselves to open up to other ways to solve their problems. They tap into things like deeper sense of creativity. They become more fluid and flexible in their thinking and in their problem solving. They tap into things like intuition. They're a lot more open to and this is in my experience, primarily a, a, a female problem, but more open to receiving. Women sometimes are we're fabulous at giving. We can give all day long, but sometimes we have trouble with receiving. So when women open up to being uh, able to receive as much as they give, the and everything does a hundred and eighty degree turn.
0: Mm-hmm. So. One other question about this, and this is just based on, on sort of personal experience. Um, why do you see sort of these cycles of, you know, what I call feast and famine in terms of performance, whether that performance is in terms of, you know, the work itself in terms of, you know, financial rewards, um, why do we see the up and down that occurs?
1: I've seen a couple of things that stand out really. Number one is, um, and I have to be careful about using this word, so let me explain it. Being unrealistic. Now, in, a, in terms of visualizing and dreaming and setting big goals and reaching for them, I am a huge fan of being wildly unrealistic. I want you to dream big and bold and huge and go for it. However, the problem in translation And maybe a better word is impatience. Maybe that's a better word to describe it. This idea, and you know, it's funny, this goes back to the, you and I talked about, you know, sound bites. This goes back to this sense that there are overnight successes and things happen, you know, with immediacy and you get a million dollars in six weeks and just all of this, this nonsense. And so I think there is a lot of impatience that is... It drives people to give up too quickly, drives people to be inflexible or impulsive. And I think the key to any long-term success is number one, no, there are going to be ups and downs. There are going to be some times where it looks like feast or famine. But if you're in it for the long game, if you're in it for the long haul, then you cultivate what you have to do to persist and persevere. I don't see enough people working on Cultivating those qualities within themselves. And then the second thing is, and again, this is more of an inner thing, but consistent belief belief in the absence of tangible evidence, which sounds woo and it sounds ridiculous and a lot of people dismiss it. But I will tell you, I've seen more people jump ship because they are arguing on behalf of results not showing up rather than doing everything in their power day in and day out to assure that the results will show up. And so that's more of an an internal sort of you know, struggle, Mm. but you've got to cultivate belief, even when the evidence is not there in front of you. Mm. And that's a hard thing, especially if you have a skeptical mind, it's very, very difficult to do.
0: Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Wow. Um, So, you know, it's interesting that you brought up um, a long term view, because I think in my mind, at least, and just based on my experience, our perception of a long term view in today's world is incredibly warped. Um, We have a very sort of uh, false sense of what that looks like. It's usually a year for most people. They consider that a long time. And I'm just curious, you know, what you have to say about that.
1: Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. I just heard uh, Gary Vaynerchuk talking about this the other day, and I was laughing out loud because he he nailed it. It is absolutely true. And when I think of the long game, the long haul, I'm thinking 35, 40 years. That's that's what I'm thinking about. So I'm thinking always about the quality of the life I expect to have left, which is at least another 40 years. Now, when I say I'm in something for the long haul, I am not saying it needs to look exactly like it looks today. For the rest of those years, what I am in the long haul for is my consistent expansion, my consistent service in the world, consistently creating more and more abundance of all forms, not just money, but all forms in my life that's going to show up in different ways. I'm going to have different opportunities show up for me to do all of that. I have to have an intention and a willingness to meet those opportunities. Oh, and a preparedness. Is it Oprah who said, I can't remember who said, that luck is just being prepared, uh, meeting opportunity. That's all it is. And so again, I am consistently not only working on myself at every level, I am consistently staying open to the opportunities that are going to step forward to assist me with that all the way. Now, you know, for me, that looks like maybe, I mean, and this is my third business, my first two businesses were psychotherapy practices. And then I recognized, okay, no, I'm being called to go do something else and expand even more. And so I, I suspect that other things are going to show up and ask me to continue to expand into them. My goal is not to ever give up, not to ever shrink, not to detach from my greatness, not to ever stop being of service. That's the long game for me. Now for somebody else, it might be just the continuous growth of their current business. There's no wrong, but you can't look at it in terms of just a year or five years. You've got to really think way further into the future for that. And the best thing you can ask yourself is, what do I consistently want to feel? What experience of this life and of, you know, my either my business or my passion or my nonprofit work? How do I want to experience that regularly? That's what will guide you along the way.
2: Wow. Wow.
0: Wow. Uh, well, this has been truly amazing. I can see why Michael referred you as a guest. So I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Oh my goodness. I love this question so much. <clears throat> well, I guess it, it, it would be out of integrity for me to say other, anything other than this. Anytime I meet Another person and connect with another person who has at least gotten a glimpse of their greatness and is brave and bold enough to stand in it and share it with the world. That, that's it in a nutshell. That's it in a nutshell. And you know you're with those people because of how you feel when you're around them. Mm. They wake you up. They light something up in you. It's a a fire or it's something wakes up or stirs in you. And those are the people for me who are, you know, unmistakable, unforgettable. They are, they are true leaders. And so I guess that'd be my answer.
0: Mm. Amazing. Uh, Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and sharing your story and your insights with listeners. Where can people learn more about you and your work?
1: Oh, um, thank you so much for being here and asking such phenomenal questions. I really appreciate the depth with which you ask your questions. And yeah, so if if you want to find anything else about me or what I do, I would invite you to check out my website. It's Kelly, com, And um, I invite you to take the free training on the homepage, which is all about how you overcome imposter syndrome, doing some of the things and addressing some of the concepts that you heard me talk about